in some ways, especially here in the Midwest, when we think about sheltering in place in our homes, there are very clear delineations, right? Like my house is X number of feet from yours. There are, you know, four walls around me. I'm able to isolate. The Midwest and Ohio in particular is, is very highly segregated. Our cities are very highly segregated by income and by race. And what that allows is such a difference in lives. Let's just take Dayton. You could pick any of the other Ohio cities and make the same um, comparison. Some of us could just happily go from our nice, safe job environment to our nice, safe home and neighborhood, stopping at Starbucks and the Kroger's grocery store on the way, getting all of our amenities, dialing in somebody to bring us food. Um, we almost could imagine that these problems don't exist, except if we force ourselves to read and absorb it. Stay at home, shelter in place, curfew, quarantine. To many of us, they were an inconvenience. But what happens when there's no home to stay in or no shelter in which to shelter in place? How about when home isn't safe or shelter isn't sufficient? In November of 2020, one out of six adult renters in the US or 12.4 million people reported that they were not caught up on rent. In the same survey, 34% of all adults said they found it difficult to cover usual expenses like food, rent, and medical costs. But these numbers only scratch the surface of what millions of Americans are going through on a familial level, where the very idea of shelter is problematic to begin with. Welcome to Social Distances, a podcast where we examine the distances that both separate us and bring us together during the complex and compounded crises of 2020 and beyond. I'm your host, Logan, and today we're talking to Andrea Seelstad, professor at the University of Dayton School of Law, and Katherine Crosby, chief of staff for the city of Toledo, about how shelter in place looks different across the spectrum of society. The question of why, according to Andrea, is more than a bit complicated. Of course, there's so many issues that are implicated by COVID, and many of them pre-existed COVID. So then what's, what the interesting question is, well, what did this pandemic do and some of the restrictions and reactions to it do to some of those um, existing issues? So of course, you've named a couple of them, like the housing and the um, you know people's placement in housing or, or homelessness. That's, of course, an issue. And then you have the issue of people and their risk for, well, the increasing numbers of people who would be at risk for eviction because of income issues, because we have increased unemployment and um, interference with work because not all the parents can, you know, parents with children can't all be working out of the home when the kids are at home. And so lots of different reasons that the economic uh, health of the families has, has diminished in these times. Um, so then that puts strain on people's ability to keep their housing and pay their bills and their utility and all of that. So there, of course, during the pandemic, um, there has been a lot of encouragement from the government, from public health organizations to shelter in place, to be able to isolate, to stay in your home. For some of these people for which shelter in place might not be possible, what are some situations that uh, you know, could be possible 
for these people who are seeing adverse effects from, um, you know, shelter in place? Some of us, we all have suffered psychologically and stress-wise and with the uncertainties and, you know, some of the inconveniences. But there's a huge difference between those of us who are sheltering with more security in nicer neighborhoods with food and groceries and all the amenities of life in relative proximity and an ability to go to the grocery store once every, you know, two weeks or something and stock up. That's a lot different from the people who are living more on the margins of subsistence that have to go. They don't get huge amounts of money where they can go to the grocery store for two weeks of time, you know, two weeks of groceries or whatnot, or just dial up, um, have your food, you know, delivered to you or just run down to the corner store because in a lot of the communities there's not even those facilities there's not even the grocery stores and the facilities that could do that with poor economic health alongside limited access to groceries comes poor physical health one 2020 study from the center on budget and policy priorities showed that 12 percent of adults in the u.s almost 26 million people reported their household didn't have enough to eat in the past seven days That's more than triple the number that didn't get enough to eat at some point in the entire year of 2019. One issue is really the availability of food, like something basic for subsistence as food. There's a very high percentage of families and families with children that don't have enough food in a week, a week's time to get proper nutrition. That's that's pretty shocking. And of course, that's always the case, um, sadly, but it's increased during COVID. For Catherine, 150 miles north, on the ground in Toledo, Ohio's fourth largest urban center throughout the entirety of the pandemic, there have been new challenges in getting resources to people and people to resources. So the big thing, um, you know, early on that we learned about was the food insecurity piece. So United Way and Connecting Kids to Meals really picked up to support um, food distribution. We also use some of our CARES dollars to support food distribution, um, as well as access to health um, healthcare services around testing and things like that. So that was one thing that we saw. Um, I think the other thing that was concerning is just the transportation. So you saw TARDA had to limit the number of people on bu- buses, which had a significant impact on people getting getting around. In addition to lack of housing or lack of sufficient resources while sheltering in place, some homes just weren't safe. According to one study by the Council for Criminal Justice, domestic violence was up 8.1% in 2020. Andrea saw that play out in Dayton. There's just this whole, a whole lot of issues with security and safety, domestic violence and child abuse that has gotten tremendously worse during these times. So people who are sheltering in a place that's highly distressed with aspects of violence and fear and and a neighborhood that's crumbling apart without the the amenities close and without the security and safety, it's just a stay-at-home sheltering is quite a bit different. Back in Toledo, the situation didn't seem much better. According to local news station WTOL 11, in the weeks surrounding the implementation of Ohio's stay-at-home order, the Toledo Police Department saw a nearly 20% increase in domestic violence calls. I would say the most significant thing that sticks out in my mind is the violence. Um, And specifically, we saw more young people under the age of 18. So we had 
a couple of instances where, you know, we had a young man at 15 who was killed due to gun violence. Um, we, we have a couple of instances of gunplay. So young people playing with guns um, and, and they end up, you know, with a fatal outcome. So, you, and then even just like, because all of the recreational activities were shut down and there was nothing for folks to do, you know, what, what the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, oftentimes there are things that we take for granted. For example, like, you know, when a city budget gets cut, recreation and, and investment in parks, those things are, are the first to go. And the pandemic has showed us that why those things are important. So if kids don't have access to outlets, they can't go to school, they can't see their friends, there's no recreation, then you see that there's a direct correlation to an increase in violence. If young people don't have outlets for um, recreational amenities, you see a direct correlation in, in our violence numbers that, that went up. And so that's probably what stuck out to me most. And I'm hoping that that resonates, um, not just in Toledo, but just across the world, that, you know, those things that we take for granted and, and we, we um, say, oh, that's not important. You know, this this is more important that actually that's what keeps our community safe. Um, those are the things that drive up costs when they're missing because people turn to other ways to release. So when Dr. Fauci recommended that we shelter in place across the nation, that recommendation looked incredibly different for different people because of historic economic, cultural, and racial discrepancies. All of this impact is disproportionately borne by people who have less means already, right? And have already been living like close to the margins of subsistence and, you know, holding on to their housing and some of these basic things. But people of color in particular have suffered the brunt of that. And I think that if nothing else, COVID did bring that to light more in the general population, that it wasn't caused by COVID. It pre-existed COVID. But all of the pre-existing condition of healthcare disparities, as well as income disparities and all these other things, some of the historical traumas um, are so embedded in our system and all of our systems, actually, that when you added to it the stress from COVID and all of the things that we all experience, the people in people of color, African Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, Latinx, um, and Asians in particular have really um, suffered even disproportionately in all of these measures. You can take food, you can take housing, you can take um, security and safety and violence, you can take education, you can take about any measure. You can take outcomes on COVID who was most at risk to the worst COVID outcomes. Those discrepancies also play out in housing, whether for cultural, socioeconomic, or other reasons. There's cultural reasons that people live in larger groups and congregates. Lots of, lots of cultures around the world, like even immigrants that came to the United States, as well as Native Americans, lots of people um, live in a more communal existence, even sharing households or going back and forth between households or living in proximity, several in an area. So that's a factor there. And it's by and large a positive because it provides more strength and security 
and connection between the generations and be, between the, the people. But then that same thing in, in COVID's time, if there's a, a virus that has such a, a transmission, it added another layer of issue. Um, but I think maybe you're also talking just a bit, well, the issue of poverty comes up because there's lots of people who have to pool together resources and live together in larger numbers in smaller spaces just to make ends meet. And then if you get to the level of people who are either incarcerated or living, you know, in facilities of some kind, um, you have a different experience for those people. And then if you get to the issue of homelessness, that's a whole other specter because a lot of our response to homelessness has been to put put these shelters out there where people can just go in there. And then of course, of course with COVID, we couldn't do that quite the same way. Then you might have to see a person with a sign or a homeless person asking for money as you drive by. It's troubling for people to be confronted with that. Maybe it's also scary. Maybe some people could argue it's you know dangerous, but a lot of it is just troubling that it's disturbing to me if I'm driving to my from my relatively safe home and to my relatively safe job that actually pays me a decent income. It's distressing to me at a personal level to have to be confronted with the fact that these people are just struggling below the subsistence level. And so we spend a lot of our time, I think, in society trying to sequester people from that. Because if you're confronted with it, it's hard to turn away. I know that, uh, for example, the the city of Toledo was trying to address um, the need because their homeless shelters were then in even more limited capacity at a time when, of course, the the homeless population um, you know was growing here. Um, but I'm interested maybe in some of the policies that have been put forth around around shelter, around um, you know homelessness, around evictions, those kind of topics. You know, and that's an interesting thing to even think about what is a policy, because a lot of it has been more like financial base. Like if you even if you look at either the CARES Act or this more recent American Rescue Plan Act that just came into effect. I don't know, maybe pieces of it are you could identify as policies, but a lot of it is about financial assistance. In an attempt to relieve financial stress on Americans and limit the spread of COVID-19, The CDC ordered a halt in evictions in September through the end of the year and now further into 2021 for those unable to pay rent. But many accumulated debt through these postponed but still unpaid bills and jumping through hoops to even maintain legal ground to stay meant millions still struggled. But if we look at it, even on the face of it, it's basically... It's not really a policy. It's just a temporary measure that says, it's, let's make it harder for landlords to evict people in this time frame. But if you look carefully at it, it's not the only kind of evictions that are saved, if they can be saved, are evictions based on non-payment of rent, where, um, which is caused you know, or exacerbated by this COVID situation. And there's actually quite an elaborate well, some would argue whether it's elaborate or not, but if you work with people who are living at the margins, any kind of process like this that requires that you affirmatively know information and get forms and download forms and then go to the court and file them and then serve them on the landlord and then and do all of this after you've gotten your eviction notice, anything like that without assistance or somebody coming and helping you or even how do you print out the form? I mean, it's hard. 
sometimes it's hard to get this idea that, oh, it's just a form. Okay, but think about it. You're in a home. You don't have a computer. You don't have a printer. You're supposed to stay at home. Your kids aren't going to school and you don't have a job place for it. Most of, you know, some of the time, even the businesses are closed. Where are you going to get the form and print it out? And how are you going to know about it if somebody doesn't tell you? And there's organizations out there that are helping people. But one of the main things is like the, the outreach and the, the going to people and finding them and giving them the information that hasn't been there. And that's made worse by COVID when all of us are supposed to be sitting in our offices and not going out into the community anymore. It's had a positive impact. I don't mean to suggest that it hasn't, but it's, it's not really a policy change. It's a short-term measure designed to keep people in place during this time period, but only for certain things. But back in Toledo, the city government worked with community organizations to help the local community stay housed during the pandemic. According to Princeton University's eviction lab, historically, Lucas County's eviction rate surpasses the state's and is more than double the national rate. We had a lot of concern about people being evicted, especially during a time where people needed shelter because they have to work work, work remotely. And so the CARES dollars, the stimulus dollars that we received, um, or the CARES Act dollars that we received was very helpful to that. Um, so we were able to deploy about a million and a half, I think it was about a million and a half dollars um, uh, to Lutheran services and neighbor works to help with rent. Um, to prevent folks from being evicted. And then we just announced some additional money um, that's supporting rent as well as mortgage. Um, so that was helpful. So, th- so those dollars that came down from the federal government was really important in terms of keeping people keeping people housed. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges um, to that is making sure that you have systems in place that, that you can, you know, quickly deploy those resources. So it was really important for us to be able to work with our nonprofit organization, um, so that they could, could set up application processes for folks um, to be able to apply for those funds. But while impact of policy and funding can sometimes be a slow, winding path to the people, city administrators and workers at the forefront of communication, engagement, and development have learned important and formative lessons for policymaking in the future. Perhaps the main thing is the awareness that COVID brought to glaring light, along with some of the incidents with the police brutality and some of the the resulting protests over the summer, like those two things really converge of the tremendous and ongoing disparities based on race and, and income, but, but based on race and the healthcare disparity is a huge issue for every population of African-Americans, native Americans, Latino, every population, the disparities in the underlying health and condition of the health, as well as access to resources and the history of, of access and of many other levels is, is unequal. And I think we've now seen that. I think everybody's now seen that and there was momentum to address it. But those structural inequalities are just so deeply embedded that it's going to take a lot more work. And when you work with people who are indigent and struggling in some kind of way because they've come to your attention as a lawyer as I do you know I'm I'm always seeing people as a lawyer who are having some kind of a distressing legal situation so already that something has happened they're not just coming for fun right but um when I I when you get to know people 
in these distressing situations who are also indigent and coming from different communities, Native American communities, African American communities, um, Appalachian communities, immigrant communities. Um, there's so much talent and brilliance. So the more that we can bring to success to be able to exercise their talent, the better off we all are. It, it's just so much to think about that we take, we took for granted pre-pandemic that um, I hope, uh, you know, I hope that post-pandemic, we don't lose sight of that. Because oftentimes what happens is like you said, you start to settle in with this is our normal. And um, and then you're like, okay, well, you know, on to the next thing. You know, I am fortunate that, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed, right? But I know that there are people who are out there hurting and just always making sure that we're standing at the fore, you know, keeping that in the forefront of our, our minds and not getting caught up in our privilege to be able to work remotely or to eat whatever we want to eat. And, um, and, and we don't lose sight of those folks that are actually hurting um, in, the, in, the midst of this, in the midst of this pandemic and after and after. I'm your host, Logan, and this is Social Distances where each week we look at a different cross-section of society that has been impacted by the crisis and unpack topics ranging from the environment, earth and death, shelter, media, race relations, and more through insights from historians, anthropologists, policymakers, and other researchers. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the video edition on social media under at MidStory or at www.midstory.org. This program is made possible in part by Ohio Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Social Distances is produced by MidStory, edited by Samuel Chang, written by Ruth Chang and Logan Sander, with original music by Dream Louder, and graphics by Jesse Walton.